This week, could reading lessons be the key to Britain's withdrawal from Afghanistan? I have got to raise their educational level up. I've got to give them the ability to read and write. Otherwise, nothing we're going to do is ever going to endure. And is the coalition targeting Colonel Gaddafi falling apart? They're using force to achieve change. But the challenge which they face really is, well, do they have the stomach for war? Headlines. The business secretary's criticised a speech about immigration made by the Prime Minister. Vince Cable says David Cameron was very unwise when he said it was of vital importance to bring down the level of migration from outside the EU. The statement Mr Cable says could risk inflaming extremism. Another News of the World journalist has been arrested on suspicion of phone hacking. James Weatherup's been detained in London. The paper's chief reporter and former news editor were arrested last week and released on bail. A man's been convicted of threatening to kill the leader of the UK Independence Party, Nigel Farage. Justin Adams made the threats a few months after a plane crash in which both men were seriously hurt. The Foreign Office has confirmed a British man died in police custody in Dubai. Reports said Lee Brown, who was 39 and from East London, had been arrested six days earlier after an argument at a hotel. And there have been protests at BP's annual general meeting in London, the first the company's held since the Gulf of Mexico oil spill devastated wildlife. Could Afghanistan become the West's forgotten war? A year ago, David Miliband was the Foreign Secretary, intimately involved in Britain's military operation there. Now he's retired from frontline politics, but he's worried events in Libya and the Middle East mean the world's attention has drifted from events in Afghanistan. Without a political framework, a political settlement, then we're going to be getting closer to the end date of 2014 without an end game, and I think that's dangerous. I think we need to appoint a UN mediator to talk to all the sides, including the Taliban, but also the other Afghan groups and the Western powers, and make a political settlement the purpose of all of our activity, whether it be military or development, it has to be servicing a sustainable political settlement in Afghanistan. Command of Task Force Helmand was handed over this week to 3 Commando Brigade as 16 Air Assault Brigade's tour came to an end. Brigadier James Chiswell is the outgoing commander in Helmand. We're just on the cusp of another uh, hot summer ahead and there'll be a lot of hard, hard work to be done. Uh, and I would suggest actually that the, the full impact of what we may or may not have been uh, achieved over this last winter will only be, uh, we'll only be able to draw conclusions on that probably this time next year. I've been struck consistently by the, the competence of when the Afghan army rolls out the door, um, its ability to, uh, to bring a sense of confidence to the local people inevitably far outstretches ours. They love to see their army um, amongst them. So very powerful tool, I think. The man in charge of NATO's mission to train Afghan forces is Lieutenant General William Caldwell. I caught up with him at the Imperial War Museum where he was handing over memorabilia for their war story exhibition. He told me that before they can even start military training of Afghan recruits, they have to deal with far more basic problems. One of the key things we're finding is, is education. You know, they're, in, they're a very illiterate country. It just they have not had the opportunity to be educated. And so our recruits only come in at about 14% literate. 
That means 86% of every young man and some of the women we get cannot read or write. They can't even, they can't even write their name. They can't count money. They can't read the serial number on their weapon. I mean, they, the, the degree of illiteracy is beyond comprehension for most Western nations. So one of the key things we've taken on this year is, is starting to provide education to those young men to raise them up to about a first to third grade kind of level so that it does have the ability to stick and sustain itself. And how has the quality and the training of the recruits changed since you've been running it? I would say today the quality is, uh, is far superior than we were 18 months ago. We still get the same basic recruit coming in, but in tremendously greater numbers. Of every recruit that walks in the door, 10% uh, we turn away. We don't even let come through the door. We're able to be that selective. And how high are those standards? Are they standards where you have to make some kind of concessions, or could you measure them up to American or British standards? What we're trying to do is establish an army that's right for Afghanistan. What does that mean? Uh, that means it's uh, capable of providing for the security within their country for them, for the insurgency that they're having to deal with. Uh, the, the British forces I have, they're expeditionary. They can go nat worldwide and conduct operations anywhere. Um, we're not trying to teach the Afghan force to be that way. We're teaching them to handle an internal insurgency within their own nation. So good enough? Uh, I, I, I call it Afghan right, um, just because it's right for Afghanistan. It's what the Afghans need uh, is what we're doing, not what we perhaps might want for the British Army or for the American Army. Does that mean that you wouldn't necessarily accept uh, one of your <clears throat> Afghan recruits into the American Army? The recruits that we get are, are tremendous fighters. They're very dedicated. Uh, they have incredible intelligence, but they're not educated. And so they, t for them to progress and perform well into the future, that's why we've taken on the education piece. Um, but as far as their fighting skills go, they are good fighters. When led properly, they're great fighters. What do you think your biggest challenges will be between now and 2014? I would not have said this when I first arrived there a year and a half ago. When I arrived in 2009 and I was told, Bill Caldwell, you have to take on the literacy challenge, my answer was, I, I don't do literacy. I'm a military officer. That's not my job. That's somebody else's. Today, I'm a zealot about literacy because I have got to raise their educational level up. I've got to give them the ability to read and write. Otherwise, nothing we're going to do is ever going to endure. It allows Corruption can take place at the lowest level. If somebody can't count their own money, then I'm dependent on somebody else to count my money. If I can't read my inventory sheet of what equipment I'm supposed to have, if I can't read the maintenance manual, know how to take care of this piece of equipment, uh, if I can't read the rules and regulations I'm supposed to follow, that I'm totally dependent upon somebody else to do that for me. So this greatly empowers each of those young Afghan recruits so that they can become more independent and self-assured and eliminate corruption at the lowest level. How long do you think you will be involved, the Americans, in a training capacity in Afghanistan? Today, there's about 150,000 troops there. We only make up 4,000. So we're maybe 3%. I think we'll be the last to leave. And do you know when that will be? Uh, I, I think, based on the discussions with the various governments of Afghanistan, the United States, Great Britain, I think there will be some kind of enduring partnership that will probably be through training relationships that will probably endure for many, many years. 
Lieutenant General William Caldwell. Well, our reporter James Hurst spoke to the head of the Afghan National Army, Lieutenant General Sher Mohammed Karimi, and asked him about progress in training. The ANA has been doing uh, a very good training. Recruiting-wise, we don't have any problem. Uh, we go the uh, program of the recruiting by the schedule. We have the uh, right people, you know, for uh, for the army volunteers. That's no problem. Uh, the training uh, centers has expanded. In the past, we had just one training center in Kabul. Now we have, beside that, we have uh, regional training centers in each core area. How long do you think you will need support from other countries? You see, it, it depends on the uh, nature of the enemy, the threat. Uh, if we succeed in all the other efforts, which goes parallel with the uh, military uh, combat issues, like, for example, uh, uh, transition and the reconciliation, the reintegration, which is also very important. You see, by, uh, just by fighting or uh, combat uh, building uh, efforts, you cannot bring peace. Peace has to be looked at from all angles, political, social, and military. But the military side is uh, the key. Uh, the stronger you are, the, 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 the better the enemy will accept the negotiation terms, you know. The question is, we, we have to have stability and peace in Afghanistan. Once you have stability and peace, then you don't need the troops. Lieutenant General Sher Mohammed Karimi. Well, I'm joined in the studio by BFBS's defence analyst Christopher Lee and on the line is Professor Michael Clark, Director of the Royal United Services Institute. Hello to both of you. Uh, Professor Clark, there's no doubt from what William Caldwell was saying that education is al- almost as important as military training. Yes, absolutely, and, and uh, much more so in the case of the police than the Afghan National Army. Um, and, but that's, in a, in a sense, the point he made. If it's, if, it's, if it's good enough for Afghanistan to get to a certain level of literacy, then they can work on that. Because let's be clear, the, the target is to make the numbers by 2014-2015. So we're looking at the idea that the Afghan National Security Forces can be at, at, at 300, 350,000 by then, and they have to be good enough not the best that they can be, but good enough to hold down the security situation as, as it may exist then by that date. Uh, Christopher, do you share the kind of views we've heard uh, that are pretty positive on the recruitment of Afghan forces so far? Um, not entirely, and nor do people in the White House. They sent a report to Congress last Tuesday before last saying that, in fact, it isn't working as advertised at all. But you see, where the general's right... Um, this idea that you're dealing with a, a different sort of country, a different sort of people. I mean, one example, uh, he's, he was talking about people can't write. It's also true that 20%, 20% of children don't live longer than five years. So it's incredible uh, that, out of five it? babies, four are going to be dead before their fifth birthday. Now, that is a society in which we, as a, as a body trying to sort of uh, instill security. All the issues are far more complex than we can see them if we think of it in sort of NATO terms and what we would do under ideal conditions. Mm. Mike, Michael Clark, uh, Brigadier James Chiswell said it could be a year before we know whether the progress made in recent months will stick. Um, a year? Will that be long enough to know? Well, we, we won't know before that time because um, I know that James Chiswell and the, the, um, uh, the mentoring that uh, 16 Air Assault Brigade did 
was pretty effective, certainly at the technical level, and that the brigades that they were uh, involved with, a particular brigade, the um, Afghan National Army Brigade, they think that they're pretty close to tactical independence, genuine tactical independence, and that they will be there with, with complete independence in about a year's time. So that will be the tester when these brigades can stand up without any background support other than a, 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 a strategic reserve and do whatever job is required of them. But uh, I mean, I talk to trainers quite a lot in, in Afghanistan and outside and, and I always ask them how good are they? And these are our own NCOs, our own uh, junior officers who are doing some of the training the trainers and they say they're good enough but we don't know how good they'll be under pressure. Uh, in a standard job, they will do the job, they will stand, they are, they are good enough. Um, but if, they, if the situation moves sideways, if they are under real pressure, we, at the moment we genuinely don't know how cohesive these units will turn out to be. You see, that this, this phrase that, that we keep hearing of good enough, in some respects it kind of surprises me, Christopher, because I, I almost think they ought to be better because of the situation they've yeah. got to deal I mean, with, you, you, e- even you, better than, than good okay. enough. Good enough's a lousy phrase, ain't it? Because what you say, oh, it's good enough for them. It's not, we don't mean it in that way. We mean there is a situation talking about the type of society, we can train people to look after that society, and I think that's, that's important. The other part of it, talking to trainers, is what happens, and after all, we've gotten to, what, December, I think it is, Mike, December uh, 2014, which is a sort of cut-off yeah. point. It's a long way to go. You can do a lot of good training by then. The other part of it is, what happens when the drawdown comes? What does the army then do? And there are a lot of scores to be settled. There's a lot of uh, fears that it might just turn into another military, uh, a military society. Uh, uh, Michael Clark, do, you were talking about them having to be able to stand on their own, really. If they prove incapable of doing that, uh, what does that mean for us? Might we have to go back and help again? Yes, it does. And it means that uh, allied forces, uh, coalition forces, will have to take a bigger role than they anticipate. And, and as, as we stand now in uh, 2011, nobody in the Ministry of Defence can give you a clear sense of what our forces will be doing in 2015 and thereafter. Um, the, the, the theory is we will have an overwatch role and uh, we will have technical support and mentoring and we'll be doing that for quite some time. But there is no... Um, pattern or plan yet for what our troops will actually be doing um, from the middle of 2015 onwards. So yes, if this goes wrong, then I think we'll find ourselves back in in it in some degree. Uh, uh, Christopher, David Miliband, talking about uh, Afghanistan being in danger of uh, becoming the forgotten war. It might well be the war we we could never forget because we'll be committed for so long. We're going to be committed, but not in the way that people imagine. Don't don't forget that this uh, 2014 or by 2015 drawdown is talking about combat role. And that's the ambition, is the combat role. People I speak to say... 10 years maybe there uh, before. It's not going to be forgotten. Uh, and even the, even the people that are trying to plan know that they're probably not going to be able to plan beyond the next five years. All right, gentlemen, stay with us. Sit Rep with Kate Still to come this week, who is Britain's greatest ever general? He played the vital role in undermining a threat to this country that was... Uh, incomparable. Forgotten general of the Forgotten Army. The epitome of the soldier's soldier. 
The stalemate in Libya shows no sign of shifting decisively, either towards the rebels or Colonel Gaddafi's fighters. This week, there have been furious diplomatic efforts, first by the African Union and then a summit of international leaders, which for the first time included the rebels. But while David Cameron and Nicolas Sarkozy want to step up the military pressure on Gaddafi, there's little evidence other NATO members, including the United States, are as committed. Dan Smith is Secretary-General of International Alert, a charity working in war-torn countries. I think a stalemate is very likely to happen, but the stalemate won't endure forever. The stalemate would be a period, possibly a protracted period, in which the outcome still remained unclear and in which the will of the Western leaders would be very sorely tested. They're using force to achieve change. But the challenge which they face really is, well, do they have the stomach for war? Well, earlier I spoke to Lord Ashdown, formerly the UN's High Representative to Bosnia, and I asked him whether he thought the government's getting it right on Libya. Yes, they are. I mean, uh, it's never easy, these things. It's never tidy either. I mean, you know, Northern Ireland wasn't tidy when I marched into Belfast as a young soldier in 1969. Who would have thought this thing would go on for, what, 37, 38 years, and we're still not quite there. If you look at Bosnia after our final final uh, intervention there, having waited so long, that's not tidy either. East Timor isn't tidy. You know, the fact that you use force doesn't mean to say you get a tidy solution. The question you have to ask yourself is not what is the outcome if you do it, nearly always less than perfect, but what is the consequences if you don't do it? And what is very clear about what happened in Libya is if we had not intervened, the situation would have been far, far worse. We would have seen another Bosnia we would have seen a juddering halt to the Arab Spring from which we have so much to gain. And we've given a very clear signal to all the other tyrants in the Middle East that all they needed to do to stop the revolution in favor of democracy was slaughter their people on the streets. So is it tidy? No. Could it go on yet for quite a long time? Yes. Do we have the end point of this in our hands? No, because we're trying to give the Libyan people the right to be able to choose their own end point. But was it right to do it? Absolutely. You mentioned the Arab Spring. Do you think uh, our Prime Minister, among others, was slightly naive when they went into this, thinking that it would, uh, it would all be resolved fairly quickly? You better ask them. I don't think so. I mean, I think they're pretty realistic people. And I remember speaking to Downing Street at the time and saying, look, you do realise this is not going to be done quickly and it's not going to be done tidily. We are not imposing our solution. The whole purpose of this, unlike Iraq, the whole purpose of this is to give them the right to choose their own. So my guess is that the likely outcome of this, if there isn't a ceasefire and a diplomatic um, solution fairly soon, probably is a divided Libya for a bit, a free Libya in, in, with capital in Benghazi, and a Gaddafistan uh, with a capital in Tripoli. Question, how long will Libyans who want to be free living in Gaddafistan be prepared to put up with Gaddafi? I don't know, but not long is my thought in which case they become the instrument for resolving this, not us. Now, that isn't as neat as dropping bombs on people to force them to do what we want to do, but it may produce a more sustainable solution. Many critics of the Defence Review have taken this opportunity to say that it should be reviewed because the situation in Libya has shown the shortcomings of some of the decisions and cuts that are going to be taken. Do you share that view? Yes. I mean, the Defence Review was, in my view, done um, badly. Uh, to be very blunt, I didn't have a political leadership it needed. It arrived at conclusions that I find very difficult to um, to agree with. Uh, 
And it's presented a balance in the armed forces, at least for the next two or three years, which in my view, and I've said it very publicly, if Britain were to be tested with a serious security challenge, we would be found wanting. And Libya has come along, not a quite a, a security challenge to our nation, but certainly a security challenge for us to respond to. And it doesn't take somebody deeply knowledgeable about affairs in the, in the armed services to know that this has put a significant strain on the decisions which were taken in the defense review. It is being reviewed, by the way. Everybody realizes the defense review was not enough. We're not calling it a defense review at the moment because the government doesn't want to admit it. But it, the whole thing is, is under substantial and daily review. I just hope by this process we'll come up with a rather better solution than the defense review arrived at. Lord Ashdown speaking to me earlier. Well, as Libya's rebels rejected the peace deal drawn up by the African leaders, Musa Kusa made his first public statement since defecting to Britain, warning of the risk of all-out civil war. Rusi's director, Professor Michael Clark, is still with us. Um, Britain allowed Musa Kusa, the former foreign minister in Libya, to travel to this week's talks in Doha, while police want to talk to him here more about the Lockerbie bombing. Um, why are we treating him as a quasi-diplomatic figure? Because he may be one of the keys to persuading people close to Gaddafi to peel away. I mean, Musa Kusa was a very significant figure in the, in the circle of uh, ministers around Gaddafi. And the fact that he came voluntarily to to London, that he effectively def he defected, was quite a quite a scalp for the political process of trying to weaken uh, Gaddafi's uh, tyrannical rule. And so, in a sense, putting the legal questions surrounding Lockerbie and terrorism on the back burner for a while, and allowing him to function as an international player to make it clear that he's not in any way imprisoned here, he's here of his own free will and he is saying things which may be helpful in weakening Gaddafi. That's the rationale behind giving him the leeway that they are giving him. Uh, Christopher, what hope is there still of a diplomatic solution to the situation in Libya? Well, it's about the only hope at the moment, isn't it? I mean, it's interesting that, for example, the Foreign Secretary uh, uh, Haig uh, made a point of not meeting at Kusa. But the military thing goes on. We've got, I think since the beginning, there's been 1,700 airstrikes going through. In Berlin today, where the NATO ministers are meeting, the Americans have said already, we will stick with you. Although we, in theory, have withdrawn, we have got 10 aircraft there. Um, and they say they're still carrying out ground attacks, don't uh, they? Well, not quite that, not quite that. What they will do is if NATO says we need more help, we will give that help. That's the military side, and nobody is getting any further. But watch what's happening with the African Union. The African Union still have more power over Gaddafi's family than probably even the Arab League. News, discussion and analysis. analysis. This is Zagreb on BFBS. It's exactly 50 years since the Soviet Union won the first leg of the space race. In a mission shrouded in secrecy, Yuri Gagarin blasted out of the Earth's atmosphere, a flight that lasted less than two hours. 50 years on, America now has its first national security space strategy. Around 60 countries now have satellites orbiting the planet, and the consequences of some kind of hostile attack could be catastrophic. That's not as outlandish as it sounds. Four years ago, the Chinese used an anti-satellite weapon to destroy one of their own weather satellites. Uh, Christopher, so far, 
only inconsequential satellites have been knocked out, but what if an enemy attacked a more vital satellite? Well, that's actually simply showing you can do it. I mean, what happened um, back in January um, was that in 2007 was the Chinese, they've got a, a base at Xichang, uh, and they have been working up ASAT, anti-satellite warfare, and they took out a weather satellite at about 500 miles above the Earth, is mm. near Earth, it's called. What's fascinating about it, it took 20 minutes mm. for that satellite from 5-4 down to 1, push, go. It took 20 minutes for that uh, satellite to be time, knocked out it? by the rocket, hit it at <laughs> 15,000 miles an hour, and there was nothing, nothing anybody could do about it if they were doing, if the Chinese or anybody else had been trying to do it to, say, an American satellite. There was nothing the Americans could do about it. But you imagine everything we do now, military, is satellite-based, satellite even the positioning of ships, even your sat-nav in your car, uh, even your ATM machine. The whole of society could be knocked out. The prelude to war wow. has to be knocking out it sounds like an American film, as you put it at the moment, but it's, it's a frightening thought. Uh, Michael Clark, how likely is it that future wars would be fought in space? Oh, it's almost certain that an element of future wars between the major powers would absolutely be fought in space for the reasons that Christopher gives, that uh, we are so dependent on space now and the geosynchronous orbit that it allows satellites to um, be above, above us at any one time or over the equator to appear to stand still. That's absolutely fundamental. And so if, if two major powers start to fight each other who have these capabilities, they will absolutely certainly use them because they have the capacity to black another side out for a very long time. Christopher, what can we do to protect ourselves in space? Well, not so far, not very, very much. I mean, there's airborne lasers, there's the uh, kinetic energy uh, system that's going on, which is n not around at the moment. This has been going on since the 60s. 1967, the Outer Space Treaty was designed to stop this sort of thing. Nobody has actually done it. When Ronald Reagan came up, you know, in 83, was it, I think, and said, uh, right, well, Star Wars is possible, there was an inkling. But go back. We were talking, you know, 50 years ago, Yuri Gagarin goes up, first guy in, in, in space. Go back, go back to 1957 when Sputnik went up. When Sputnik went up, Eisenhower was then president of the United States, turned around and said, if they can launch Sputnik, they can launch a bomb into space. It can come down here. It was the beginning of intercontinental uh, warfare. We haven't got very far, much further on than that. Gentlemen, stay with us. Who is Britain's greatest general? If you're struggling to answer that, you're not alone. It's a question even a panel of experts couldn't agree on. The National Army Museum in London staged a debate this week trying to pick a winner from a five-strong field, including Oliver Cromwell, the Duke of Marlborough and Douglas Haig. In the end, it was a tie for first place. One winner, the Duke of Wellington, had the support of TV historian Peter Snow. The Duke of Wellington was an extraordinary man. He was, his sureness of foot, his marvellous eye for the detail for the ground, his sense of timing, always won through. The key thing about Wellington was, unlike all the other people we're talking about, he played the vital role in undermining a threat to this country that was uh, incomparable. Wellington tied with Bill Slim, commander of the Forgotten Army in Burma during World War II. Historian Robert Lyman says the recognition is long overdue. Slim, for many, many years, has been the forgotten general of the Forgotten Army. People don't know who Slim is. They aren't aware of his extraordinary achievements. And this tremendous vote places him 
on his rightful pedestal. Slim was the epitome of the soldier's soldier. Um, men loved him in a way that they didn't ever love Marlborough, although Marlborough was Corporal John. They didn't love Wellington in the same way that men loved Slim. Christopher Lee is still with me, as is Rusi's director, Professor Michael Clark. Uh, Michael Clark, Mountbatten called Slim the finest general World War II produced, and yet mm. many people don't know anything about him. That's right, because he served in the Far Eastern Theatre, and he was involved in that in that slog of of uh, operations all the way back through uh, the uh, Malay Peninsula and uh, to to actually hit back at the the Japanese. It, it it was the 14th was the forgotten army in the sense that everyone, of course, was fixated on what was going on in Europe and even Italy. And yet, when you look at the the feats of of uh, infantry work and combined arms such as they had with uh, using air power as well, what uh, Slim did was pretty remarkable. Christopher Wellington, Slim, Cromwell, anyone missing from that list? I think so, a load of them is, uh, missing. I mean, if, if, if they're only just dead, uh, what about Alan Brooke, Mike? <laughs> I mean, I mean I, you know, Wellington you'd support because he founded your organisation. Mm. But there's... Uh, <laughs> I would have, uh, uh, say, Alan Brooke, uh, what about Montgomery? Where is Montgomery in all this? True, true. Oh, OK, listen, I'm going I'm to ask you to put, put your money where your mouth is. Um, of today's living... Or, or recently deceased. Well, so let's just stick with living. Who, who would you name as a, as a general to remember? Who, me? Yeah. OK. Uh, well, the one guy that actually did the business for us in 1982, a major general, now Major General Julian Thompson, who coupled him with... He's I your suppose, friend, though, isn't he, Christopher? Uh, I hope so. He, be <laughs> he is this. now. <laughs> but Sandy Wood would go with him. I know he's a, he, he's a mere admiral. Uh, but also another one, uh, Mike Jackson. I think he's a pretty good general. Pretty good general. I knew him from 79... Warren Point, when 18 uh, guys got themselves killed there, he was the company commander, secured the area. Very impressive. And people say he's going. And he went. He went to the top. And I think that's what we've got to look at in modern So the general. former head of the army, but, but not chief of defence staff. What, the present one? Uh, no, no, no. I mean, I'm talking about, uh, about uh, who you've just been talking about, basically. Not he the didn't become one. chief of the de- defence staff, but there were all sorts of other reasons for that, and there was a question of the time that okay, he went. Okay, Mike Clark, here's your turn. Of course. Yeah, oh, you t- Mike yeah, well, Clark, you'll uh, go. Uh, of, of present day, you, you've got to recognise Rupert Smith, who commanded in Iraq in 1991, and, and as it were, behaved like a Second World War commander. Um, he had the resources, had to do it. But in terms of the, for the same reason that Wellington is always up there, I think our present CDS, David Richards, when he was in Sierra Leone as a brigadier, he did the sort of thing that Wellington had to do. He had to hold together uh, a, a difficult, a different sort of force, the politics of it, the media side of it, uh, elements of a coalition, uh, all the things that we all now right. require of generals all in right. a relatively small operation. He had to do it all and he, d- he did it quickly. Professor Michael Clark from Rusi, Christopher Lee, thank you very much for your time this week. Uh, do join us again next week and get in touch with us. Our email address is sitrep at bfbs.com. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye for now. This is Sitrep on BFBS.